Well, if you're just now joining us at home, you missed the donut time. Sorry about that. Um, in our bright shirts, and yeah, we're having a good time this morning. So we're going to keep John's theme in mind as we go through this. And we're going to look for those things that he says about Jesus being the Son of God and how he defines that so that we can, if we were not believers, would believe and then have life. But it's important that we keep our theology straight too. And it's also important that we don't lose sight of the fact that we uh, understand Jesus correctly. And we're going to see also some... Uh, kind of on a sub note here, some things that we might learn about uh, personal conflict that is around us. In John, the seventh chapter, the first verse, let's begin there. <clears throat> After this time, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposefully, purposely staying away from Judea because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus said to his brothers, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles that you do. His brothers, this is his earthly brothers, Joseph and Mary had other children uh, besides Jesus. And of course, Joseph was not, um, the father of Jesus in the sense that it was the Holy Spirit that, uh, that uh, Mary conceived by. But he, uh, he was the father in the sense of raising, the sense of lineage, the sense of uh, um, almost adoption, I guess you would say. And Jesus said to... Uh, his brother said to him, you ought, I like that, those two words, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles that you do. No one want, who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Again, everybody's always assuming what your agendas are, aren't they? So no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. This, of course, changed after the resurrection. Uh, but at this point, this is where we're at. Therefore, Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. Testifying to something and calling people something is two different things, you know. Uh, I don't think I heard Jesus ever say that a person was evil. Uh, but I heard him speak to the evil in the world and in people's lives quite often. You go to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast yet. Because for me, the right time has not yet come. And having said this, he stayed in Galilee. Again, for me, the right time has not yet come. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowd, there was a widespread whispering about him. And some were saying about Jesus, he's a good man. 
Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Do you see all the elements that are kind of enfolding there? This is on subject, but hang with me a minute. I get a lot of, someone asked me the other day, how does it feel to, to be close to retirement? I basically have two really strong feelings about uh, retirement. And one of them is this. It feels an awful lot like graduation from seminary or college or high school. You say, well, how does it feel like graduation? People look at you like, you know, you're crazy. Because everybody's asking you what you're going to do with your life. <laughs> Isn't that what they do at graduation? What are you going to do? I have lots of ideas, too, that I get from people. And uh, some of them would like to make those plans for me. So far, I'm sticking with the rocker plan, right? And you've all heard that. I've told you before. I'm going to buy a rocker sit in it, and then if I get bored after five years, I'm going to rock, right? That's what I'm, my plan is, all right? So it's just the rocker mentality there. You got a picture of that right here, uh, that somebody has an idea of what Jesus ought to be doing, and they're telling him, hey, I think you ought to be doing this, and giving him agendas for how to make that happen. And Jesus resisted that, and I think there's a word there for us too, we need to lock into God's will and way for our lives and not let other things or necessarily people drive that direction for us uh, or we're going to get in trouble. I think it's interesting that they went around secretly at the feast or uh, speaking of Jesus secretly at the feast because of the fear of the Jews. I think there's a lot that's happening in the church today. Mike and I were talking about this this morning in our prayer time. That's because of fear of uh, different kinds of public reprisals. Would that be it? It's just easier to make some concessions and go along to get along than it is to stand on the truth, isn't it? And uh, I think we need to be careful of that. Whoever carries the big stick in the middle of conflict often wins the battle, and we've got to be careful with that, that we don't succumb to that. If you look in, uh, in uh, verse 14, we're going to pick it up there, and you're going to see that the conflict, the conflict escalates to a question of, a, of Jesus' authority. Let me back up for just a minute. In verse 12, it says he is a good man. This was some of the people's response to Jesus. In verse 12, it says, no, he deceives the people. That was the reply or the idea of some of the others. Um, you're going to see in the midst of this here as we walk through it, that people develop their opinions by and large on uh, their source of truth and their presuppositions. And I think you need to nail that down because a lot of what happens in our world today and people's uh, interpretation of events has to do with those presuppositions and uh, also those uh, 
those sources of truth that they choose. Um, and, and I'm not really making a comment on anything. I, I'm just wanting to point out some things um, that I think that are significant. Um, we live in a world right now <clears throat> where according to the stats that I saw the other day, people are not getting their news anymore from news channels. Um, they're getting it online from sources that they trust and know online more and more and more. Uh, CNN's clientele, they say, is by and large predominantly old retired people. So the new generation is looking to other sources of truth. They have, they've figured out that the media is lying to them. Okay. Uh, one example of that, uh, I heard the other day that there was an hour and a half of police footage that surrounded this Memphis thing. And I saw on four or five different stations uh, the footage that they showed never more than 20 seconds max. So there's an hour and a half of stuff there that's police footage that I saw 20 seconds of. And now they're telling me that these are the conclusions I'm supposed to draw. Uh, maybe those conclusions are right. I, I don't know. But what I'm saying to you is you have to be careful of your sources of truth. And we have to be discerning enough to say, oh, wait a minute, back off. Let me look at the whole thing. And people, uh, some, a few have asked me what I thought about all this. I don't think about it. What do you mean you don't think about it? Nobody asked me to be on the jury. Then I would think about it. Then I would have to make a comment. Then my opinion would matter. It doesn't. And I feel no need to try anybody in the court of social media or public media in any fashion. These are just principles that I have, you know. This is the way I want to operate. This is what I want to do. But we, because of our presuppositions, because of our sources of truth, and because it's just the way we are, we have an opinion on everything, and we want to make our opinion known and feel like it's important. Unless you're on the jury, I'm not sure how important your opinion is to me. You, if, if you see what I'm saying, we have a system. The system seems to be working. I'm okay with letting it work in every case. It's not the best, but that's what I'm going to do. Okay, so again, what am I talking about? The case in particular? No, I'm talking about concepts, presuppositions, sources of truth, and the way that I'm going to choose to operate in this world. And I think we need to be careful as Christians to do the same thing, or we're going to be tried the same way in the media, and it's not going to be fun. And even in the court decisions, the world stands up and says, well, we didn't get justice if they don't like the way it turned out. Isn't it crazy how we have an opinion on everything? We decide about cars, whether they're good or bad, based upon presuppositions. I decide whether a cup of coffee is good or bad, based upon presuppositions. It goes on and on, right? Be careful that those are rooted and grounded in something that's solid. And somewhere or not along the way, we've, we've lost the ability to deal with, uh, with conflict, I think, in a, in a very good way. Let's go on, and these, these truths... Or these ideas are going to come up again as we see Jesus dealing with the people here. The very things I've talked about are actually a part of this conflict. 
In verse 14, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and they asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Have you ever asked yourself that? How did Jesus come up with all of this? I mean, he was put on human flesh. He was born as a baby. At what age did he just go and know everything, you know? I mean, how did that really happen? Um, in Luke 2, 51, it says, or 52, it says, And Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature with favor, and in favor with God and man. He grew in these things. I don't know how that all happened, but I think he might have been taught wisdom by his heavenly father. There was something different about him so much so that he was sinless. Which at least, if nothing else, means to me everything that he understood to be the Father's will for his life, he walked in obedience to every day of his single life. And maybe that's different for a six-month-old than it is for a three-year-old, you know. I don't know how that all plays in, but he was sinless. And, and, and he understood not with the teaching of the Pharisees or the Sadducees where they would take a a set of facts and new Bible trivia, but he spoke in a way that had authority because he spoke with wisdom. And wisdom is to understand the world from God's perspective. And he had that. He had a perspective behind the veil to be able to see beyond flesh and blood, to see the work that the Heavenly Father was doing. He said, boy, it'd be nice to have that. Well, Bible says you can. In James 1 and 5, it says, If any man lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. <clears throat> Can you imagine being taught by the Master? Taught by Jesus? These people were amazed at his teaching. I think of the guys that were on the way to Emmaus with Jesus after the resurrection. And once it was revealed to them who he was, this is their comment. They said, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scripture to us? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to sit, you know, if we had a Bible study that Jesus was teaching next week, would you show up? Dude, I would be there. There was something about this guy. He had a wisdom. He had an understanding. He had an authority. The closest we're going to get to a sermon from Jesus, I think, is the Sermon on the Mount. I heard a preacher say one time, if you'll read it every day for a month, it'll change your life. It probably would. I think it would. And Jesus answered, my teachings are not my own. It comes from him who sent me. And if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I am speaking on my own. An important element of knowing the will of God is obedience to God. And we'll talk about that a little more. But if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? And not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? And then they said, you're demon possessed. Who's trying to kill you? 
Now remember, he came from the feast, he came to the feast from Galilee. That's where he had been. And in Galilee, they were so happy with him that they were ready to make him king. And now here over here in Judea, and they're ready to kill him. So it's entirely likely that we have two segments of people here that have totally different views and feelings about Jesus. And it would be the one group as opposed to the other saying, you're crazy. Nobody's trying to kill you. Or it could be that these people were just lying and saying, no, we're not trying to kill you while all the time they were. We've never known people to do anything like that, have we? Jesus then said, I did one miracle and you are all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, um, though he says it didn't come from Moses actually, but the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. And if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop, ju stop judging by mere appearances and make right judgment. So what is going on here? Jesus is going back to the initial problem with those people who don't like him in Judea. Those Jewish leaders there that want to take him down. Because he had healed a lame man on the Sabbath day. He had violated their Sabbath traditions. He had then, in doing that, broken the Sabbath law, which was remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Okay, and Jesus is saying to them, you don't even keep your own law. He said, you, you circumcise somebody on the eighth day. If the eighth day falls upon Sunday, you still do it. And you don't consider that a breaking of the law. And he probably could have been more specific in a lot of other ways that they were breaking the law. But he was pointing out their duplicity in application of something. Do we ever have that in our world today? But that's exactly what Jesus did. He tried to get them to see the reasoning, the logic in what they were doing and how they were violating it to say, look, you're looking at what the letter of something instead of heart of something. And there's something bigger going on here. And the work of the father on the Sabbath day would be to heal this person. I just joined him in that work. And they're missing this. And we can expect the world is going to miss it too. And in fact, what were they? They were so happy with that logical debate and that accusation of their duplicity that they wanted to kill him. They wanted to silence that voice. Now, how do you expect the world to respond to you? I'm just saying, you live in the Northwest. This ain't Texas. You better put your seatbelt on and get ready to ride, right? This is about that healing of that man on the Sabbath. And so you got to go back in that whole contest to see that. Whole context to see that. Jesus says here that the real problem is this. You're, you're not worried and concerned about the things of the Father or what pleases Him. You're not working for His honor. You're not working for His glory. You're working for your own honor. You're working for your own glory. You're working for your own agendas. And in fact, you're claiming to be one who is representing Him, but in reality, you're not. You're not doing it. You're doing such a good job of representing him that you're not even obeying the commandments that you're saying that you are obeying. Well, we could use a little more honesty in the world today, couldn't we? 
about who we are and the gracious work of the Lord Jesus in our lives. You know, unfortunately, the church or the world expects perfection from the church that is never going to be there. The church is made up of a bunch of flawed sinners, and we live in a very fallen world, and we're not always going to be perfect. And the testimony of our lives is not how good we are or how righteous we are or how wonderful we are. The testimony of our lives becomes how gracious God is in overcoming our sin and giving to us life and giving to us abundant life when we don't deserve it and we can't earn it. And that becomes the testimony of the life of the people in the church. And if we fall into the world's idea and we try to present to them what they're wanting us to see or what they're wanting to see, we're going to fall into a trap of the Pharisees. And then we're going to be living by something that is some religious legalism instead of living in love relationship with our God and with our world. It's easy to see in the pages of scripture, but it creeps into our lives in such a way that we fail to be honest with ourselves or with our world or about the grace of God and how powerful it is and what it's done to sustain us. One of the beautiful parts of the things of the, of the stories of scripture is that, is that you see in the midst of God's moving and working humanity and how flawed it is, but God's grace and how powerful it is to be able to overcome the flaws of humanity and transform and give life where there was nothing. So the conflict was over his authority there. And they were appealing to what they knew that was written in the word. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Jesus was well aware of what was in the word. And he was using the word of God in such a way to show that he was the fulfillment of those prophecies. To show them their error of their ways based upon a knowledge of the word. And his knowledge of the word came with the wisdom. Their knowledge of the world came a different way. It was studied in the schools and it didn't have the wisdom of God with it. It didn't have the love of God with it. And so, and so what you have is this, this conflict between the two. And it comes down to this. It comes down to uh, this great division because of the interpretation of the written document. Did you trek with me on that? There's much division in our world today that has to do with the interpretation of a written document. The Word of God. And it doesn't just apply to the Word of God. Anybody who resists authority will try to take their own presuppositions and their own ideas and bring them to the written document. And twist it and switch it and make it read a way that they can hold on to their presuppositions. Or the way of life that they choose. Let me give you an example. I've heard people use the story of David and Jonathan to, to say that the Bible then condones homosexuality. They talk about the love of God and love for fellow man in such a way that they want to justify a homosexual relationship. If you read it, you see David and Jonathan, they meet each other and they greet each other with a kiss and so forth. And people say, see, that's homosexuality. 
That's an interpretation that is totally wrong and bogus. But we do that. We come to the Scripture and we use it to try to justify the position that we're pushing or the agenda that we're pushing. we got to approach this baby and let the Holy Spirit lead us and guide us into the truth and the wisdom that's here that comes from the Heavenly Father. Now, folks, we do it not just with the Bible, but with, with everything. It, look, at our country has this thing called a constitution. Doesn't it? And we seem to have a whole lot of trouble interpreting that thing. Don't we? Because if you've got an agenda, you take it and you bend it and you twist it and say, well, they didn't mean this and it doesn't mean that. And it doesn't. Are you with me? Okay, now I'm just that guy, okay? If you go to twisting something that's really obvious, I immediately don't trust you. Do you understand that? If you come at me with something like David and Jonathan from this book, I'm going, hmm, wait a minute. Do I need to give illustrations to you what people are doing to the Constitution and what I think about that? This is the world we live in. That's not my battle. I'm not fighting that war. But I hope that what I can do is at least have eyes to see and ears to hear and to see when people are bringing their prejudice, their presuppositions, whatever it is their agenda is to whatever is truth and trying to divide and trying to and trying to tear apart the stuff that is foundational and structural for our life that we find in this book. Listen, we're not going to survive. We're not going to survive if we don't get our head in this book. And as Jesus is going to say in a minute, he says, at some point, people make righteous judgments. Judge righteous judgments. Judge rightly. And we're not doing that. The second conflict that we see here, he says it in verse 24. There it is. Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearance and make right judgment. Wow, that's powerful, isn't it? The second conflict was on Jesus' origin. Again, these presuppositions. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, well, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? That sounds like some of the news media I see today, don't you? Here he is speaking publicly. Look, ah, oh, you know, we thought it was this, but no, I can see the news reporter saying, and they have now publicly said he is the Messiah because look, they're doing nothing, right? Yeah, oh, man, you got to be careful with those kind of interpretations. They were still trying to kill him. But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. We know where this man comes from. Galilee. That's what they thought. And when Jesus comes, he's, we're not going to know where he comes from. Why? Why? Because he came from God the Father. That's what's happening. And you know, the scripture is fulfilled right here, isn't it? Because they didn't know. They just didn't know that they were fulfilling the scripture. And in fact, they're going to say at one point, well, he comes from Bethlehem. Did you check the birth certificate? Oh, there's another story. <laughs> then Jesus 
still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Now that's real clear what John wants us to get about who Jesus is. He is from the Heavenly Father. In fact, he was there in creation, he tells us in the first chapter of this book. <coughs> he is the Son of God. And at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid hand on him because his time had not yet come. And I don't even understand that passage, but Jesus has a way of walking through these crowds, doesn't he? God just does that. I, Mike Croy says he's got a time, God's picked it out for him, and nothing's going to change that. So he's going to eat all the donuts he wants, even though he's a diabetic, right? Uh, no, that's not exactly what he says. But the idea is that God really does seem to have a timetable here that nobody's going to thwart in Jesus' life because he's going to bring about exactly what he wants to happen in Jesus' life. And Jesus is absolutely able to, to do some incredible crazy things and avoid some incredible crazy situations that would have been death early because he's walking in that perfect will of God the Father for his life. I think there's, a, there's an awesome word there for us as well. Still, he says, many in the crowd put their faith in him. Underline that. So what is happening here? Uh, some said, when the cross comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this? <coughs> well, they tried to discredit the message. They couldn't do that. And so then they tried to discredit the messenger. Now, I've never seen that happen in my world. Have you? I've never experienced that on a personal level. Have you? Well, he's preaching the truth. Can't hammer him there. So let's just hammer him as a person. Well, that's an easy mark, you know. Not so easy mark when you're talking about Jesus. But that's what they were trying to do. Look, we know. This is scripture. This is, this is what it says. We're not going to know where he's from. This guy's from Galilee. Joseph, Mary, we got this. Can't be the Messiah. Presuppositions. Ideas that they picked up along the way. Misinterpretations of the written documents. Well, not really. It's true. Misinterpretation of your situation in light of the document maybe would be said better. So why does Jesus do this? If he'd been, if he'd been avoiding Judea because he knew they were trying to kill him, why does he show up at the feast where he knows everybody's going to be there? I think it has to do with the fact that that little verse right there in 31 Many still in the crowd, still many in the crowd put their faith in him. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. I think there's a bigger picture that he knew in God's time frame and on God's timetable. He was right at that place and at that time where he needed to be. But more than that, I think there's something here that drives Jesus in the midst of the fire to come after that one that is lost. It brought him into the midst of the fire of this world. To give his life on Mount Calvary for us. Because he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Missionaries do this all the time. They go into the mission field and put their life on the line. And many of them die. 
because they're going into a hostile situation to seek and to save that which is lost. And I think our Father set an example for us here in reaching in to a world that's going to be hostile to us in a lot of ways, but hoping and knowing and praying that somebody in there will say yes to Jesus. Conflict brings clarity, doesn't it? Jesus is very clear here about his origin. He said, I am sent from God the Father. He's talking to a crowd that is trying to seize him. And this time not make him king, but to kill him. But many in that crowd were putting their faith in him. In the midst of this, there is a truth that is being brought out about his origin and also about his authority. The third conflict is a conflict of his destination, a conflict of where he's headed. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Um, and then the chief priest and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Now, upon these guards being sent to arrest him, immediately Jesus, I think, sees what's fixing to come. And he begins to, at that point, I mean, if they're coming to arrest you and you know they're going to get you someday and you're going to be hung on a tree, then his mind immediately goes there and he says, I'm with you for only a short time and then I will go to, to the one who sent me. He told him who that was. And you're not... And you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Seems pretty clear. He said he was sent from the Father. He's going to go back to the one who sent him. John is, he's laying it out pretty clear, isn't he? And the people got it. They said, the Jews then answered, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where other people are? People are scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks. What did he mean when he said, you will look for me and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. They got it, didn't they? They made the spiritual leap, jumped there right there with him. Oh, he came from the Father. He's going back to the Father. No, no, no. They're right here on this plane, aren't they? They can't get out of flesh and blood. Read Revelation. You know, the, the Bible says there is a blessing in reading Revelation. Revelation is just an unveiling, a pulling back of the curtain so that we can see behind the scenes and what we think is chaos and confusion. And we're fighting on this level. When you open the curtain, you see that God is on his throne. Something amazing is happening in heaven. Seals are being broken. The purpose of God is 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 being fulfilled and happening. And Jesus is bringing that to fruition as trumpets sound, as all of this takes place. It's like, no, if this is all you see, you're never going to have wisdom. You're never going to see this world from this. You're only going to see this world from its position down below. And wisdom is to see it from up above. And Jesus is trying to get them Pull the veil back. See what's going on behind here. Let's jump into this to have another view of this world. And they just want to arrest him. Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. There's a lot of stuff that's said in some of the commentaries about the use of water and drink and so forth in this feast. I think Jesus, though, in just a very simple sense, then I'm not going to try to connect all of that. But in a very simple sense, he's saying, if you can pull back the veil, if you can see what's on the other side, if your soul, if your heart is hungry and thirsty for the things of God, if you will come to me, you'll drink. If you'll come to me, I'm going to fill you up. And literally, he's talking here. You're going to see as he says, these streams of water, living water are going to flow from within you. He's talking about that coming of the Holy Spirit. That's going to guide us into all truth so that we can actually open this book and the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and apply it to our lives in such a way that we can move forward and have abundant life. And we'll walk forward in this world with the wisdom that the world doesn't have or understand. And we can stand above the fray of the conflict, inviting people into the things of the kingdom of God who might have a hunger and thirst for something beyond this world. Look at this. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him. And by this he meant the spirit whom those who believe in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had, been, had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. And still others said, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. So what's your verdict? Who is Jesus to you? John made it very clear that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God. The prophet that Moses had predicted would come in like fashion is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Do you hunger and thirst? And come to Jesus. He'll open for you the veil and give you the wisdom of God. And you'll be able to walk through and understand this world in a way that will bring life and life abundant. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for these passages of scripture. It's hard to see and stay on track with John's theme of who the Messiah is. And the call is there to repent and to come and to believe. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that is the call. That's the message that John wanted us to hear. But we also know the words of Jesus. And he says, well, what they've done unto me, they're going to do unto you because you're my kid. And Father, as we look at our confrontation with the world today and the conflict that Jesus had with the world in his day, Lord, it's almost like you can take it and put the blueprint right over the Northwest. And truly, we agree with the writer of Hebrew or Ecclesiastes when he says, Lord, there is nothing new under the sun. And if we would but learn 
we would know how to walk more proficiently, more honorably to the one whom we want to bring honor and glory. So give us, Lord Jesus, the wisdom to be salt and light in a lost and dying world. For Jesus' sake, Lord. Amen. Well, whatever God's laid on your heart, you just respond to him. Whatever conflict you're in, see if you can't put it into the pages of Scripture and make sense of it maybe a little more with the wisdom of God today and a little bit less with the humanity of man <laughs> and all of our anger and our bitterness and our presuppositions. And maybe in the midst of that, we'll see some folks who will find faith in the Lord Jesus Christ.